The Universal Declaration of Human Rights promises to all the economic, social, political, cultural, and civil rights that underpin a life free from want and fear. These uh, human rights are not country-specific. They are not a reward for good behavior. They are the inalienable entitlements of all people at all times and everywhere, 365 days a year. That was Prince Zaid, the former United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, talking about the crucial importance of universal human rights. This is Thanasi Kambanis, host of TCF World Podcast. I'm talking to Sarah Margon, the Washington Director for Human Rights Watch at her office in Washington, D.C. Thanks uh, so much for making time to come on our podcast, Sarah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. One of Sarah's jobs, and I'm sure she'll tell us what her others are, uh, is to promote the human rights agenda to the powers that be in Washington. So today I want to spend our podcast uh, asking Sarah about some of the specific issues that she advocates on. uh, But more broadly, I want to hear from her about what is left of the human rights agenda uh, in an era where we've seen erosions dating all the way back to September 11th, a sort of steady cheapening of, of human rights as the currency of American values and American policy. Uh, and I, I want to know what, uh, what you would say to, to, say, an alien who comes down from another planet and asks, you know, reads about the history of the human rights agenda as uh, a cornerstone of, of American policy, uh, and tell us where, where that agenda is today. Well, you're at a moment when I feel some measure of optimism given the midterm elections. Uh, So we can get into that maybe in a little bit. But I think the overarching point when you think about the role of human rights in U.S. foreign policy is to to straightaway acknowledge the fact that all presidents uh, have struggled with um, toggling back and forth between human rights and national security priorities. And that has been something Congress has always weighed in on in favor of human rights heavily, uh, and in some cases when you have presidents who have been senators, uh, once they get to the White House, they seem to sort of forget or push to the side some of those human rights values. And there are a number of ways we've seen this struggle play out. It tends to be on sort of the big ticket hot items where you really see it, whether Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Syria. Other ones that are a little less um, in the top priority realm, like Sri Lanka, um, where you can see much more of a, a, a human rights-friendly foreign policy, are examples of how it is possible, but because they're not so heated, they don't in, often engage the Pentagon in quite the same way. Um, it's hard to transfer that knowledge to, to the real agenda. And I think what we see now, a lot of people have said, well, what's different now than before? I mean, you know, administrations have never really cared about human rights. They've never mattered. They've always been an afterthought. Or it's always been uh, a sort of hypocritical window dressing to to mask our core national security interests. Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of fairness to that. And I think, you know, it's it's hard to talk about human rights and U.S. foreign policy and not acknowledge the hypocrisy, Um, you you know, even before 9-11, right, and certainly since 2003. But, um, and the war in Iraq, I think we see that time and time again. But I think the key difference that we're seeing over the last two years with the Trump administration is that it is more blatant in terms of ignoring human rights unless it serves a political agenda for this administration. It is even more selective, um, and it is any effort to engage on human rights globally is deeply, 
deeply undermined by the bigoted, prejudiced, um, xenophobic environment that we are now seeing here in the United States. Therefore, as we said we would do a year ago, if we did not see any progress, the United States is officially withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council. You just heard a clip of the American ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, when she announced the American withdrawal from the United Nations Human Rights Council earlier this year. Well, so the, the and, and I'll put my cards on the table, I'm a fan of the human rights agenda and the, you know, the idea that even if it's flawed and often hypocritical, that it is significant and better than the opposite to put human rights as a, as a, at a minimum rhetorical cornerstone of, of policy. So there's, there's two stories that one can tell and you've, you've just, you've just intimated, uh, you, you've just taken a nod at this. One story is human rights never mattered during the cold war. They were used to justify American imperialist aggression. And in the, after the cold war period, they were used to justify commercial interests and, and so on. So the only difference between post 9-11 or, or Trump era human rights degradations and, and the past is simply rhetorical, uh, a question of, of style, how open we are about transgressing our, our, our supposed values. The other story would be one where uh, uh, we look at the, the Helsinki era uh, and even the end of the Cold War, and we see that uh, human rights are never the driver of policy, but they're also not irrelevant, whether we're talking about China in the 90s uh, or uh, the 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 fall of the Soviet Union, uh, post-colonial Africa, like contexts where sometimes, in meaningful ways, human rights drove policy. And I, which which one of those narratives do you think is right? I mean, I, I I would posit a third narrative, which is that there are ways to engage on foreign policy where. There's a sequencing sometimes that happens, but that human rights are not separated or running on a parallel track. They are incorporated into the discussion. And if you have short-term policy actions that fit into a longer-term strategy, you can, in fact, engage on human rights. And we've seen that from time to time. That's my preferred model. I think it's hard to implement when you have, uh, in this particular environment now, a very incoherent foreign policy that is ad hoc uh, and chaotic. <laughs> Um, but I think it is to the detriment of both U.S. interests and U.S. national security to totally sideline human rights or to use them cosmetically as a justification for other, um, other types of engagement. It also undermines a lot of the funding that the U.S. has spent overseas. The foreign aid budget is only like 1.7% of the total U.S. budget, although people globally and here in the U.S. think it's like 30% of the budget, which is always really interesting. Um, it's a small portion of the budget, but a lot of U.S. money goes to funding independent uh, journalists, lawyers associations, uh, NGOs in countries where they can't get other funding. Well, so is there is there an idea that all this kind of rule of law, uh, foreign policy making, didn't really make a difference. Didn't really amount to any. Didn't really amount to anything when when it was tested by events. Um, I would suggest that it's made a huge difference. I mean, Human Rights Watch is a big global organization, right? We're about five hundred people, um, but the movement more generally 
the human rights movement is so big now. It is so broad. It is so vocal. And that's not just American organizations. We have seen such an incredible rise in smaller active organizations in countries like Democratic Republic of Congo. The independent press, uh, lawyers associations have played such a big role in helping to build uh, an awareness in local communities to hold their governments to account. Now, they're not always as successful as we'd like them to be. But the fact that the noise on these human rights issues is coming not just from groups like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, but it's coming from local organizations that understand the context in a very different way, I would say is a huge sign of the success of the human rights movement and an understanding uh, that these are universal values. These are not just things Americans want. It goes beyond that. We've mainstreamed the concept that human rights are universal rights and that governments owe people some minimum responsibility. When you talk about these these problems uh, in, in Washington, yeah. who cares? Who are the people that are interested in this? And how and and how has that, if at all, how has that constituency changed yeah. uh, over the time you've been following it? It's a really good question because one of the things that I've noticed is that people who have left government, the executive branch. Uh, and especially in the last two years, who never talked about human rights issues are suddenly very concerned about. Oh, them. when they, when they leave when they leave power and can no longer do anything about it. Right, exactly. When you were there, what were you doing? <laughs> um, I think that has to do in large part because there has been, a, in a sense, people have taken for granted the understanding and sense that the United States would, at some level, promote and advance human rights values overseas, because that is not really happening at all. People now on the outside of government have taken it up and are pushing for it. And I have had people call me um, and talk about human rights that I've never heard those words uh, leave their lips before. So th I think that's a positive. There's a growing awareness within a community of foreign policy experts that human rights is not just a thing that like I talk about and I deal with. But in the executive branch, there are still people there in this administration who care about human rights. They tend to be the foreign service officers. They tend to be the civil servants. And they tend to be ambassadors or staff at embassies overseas who have a better understanding of why that matters on the day-to-day. -day. In Congress, you do have a number of longstanding champions. And I would say it's important to note that that really falls on both sides of the aisle. Uh, foreign policy is different than domestic issues. And we really see a bipartisanship on a lot of these issues. Sometimes they come to it for different reasons, um, but they're there. Senator, the now deceased Senator McCain was a tremendous, tremendous champion of a lot of human rights issues, which I think particularly in the Middle East, people find rather ironic because he was also a bit of a warmonger, as many say, and was very interested um, in military intervention in a number of situations. He also was the go-to stop for human rights activists and people who had fled conflict for um, people from, you know, press uh, countries where there were uh, repressive situations. And so he was known uh, in many different ways as one of the greatest champions on human rights. On the same time, you have Senator Leahy. Uh, you have the now retiring Congressman Royce from California uh, in, in the House who was uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He was a great champion uh, on human rights, particularly in Asia, very vocal in North Korea. Does it fall on a values-interest divide? Uh, are, the, are the people who are receptive to human rights or rule of law as a, as a core U.S. agenda item, people who focus on the values end of, of U.S. policy and, the, and their detractors are, are, are realists who frame things in terms of, of national security or, or core interests? Sometimes it's an art, not a science. So sometimes that's the case. And other times there's a personal interest, there's a personal understanding, there's constituents. 
Um, or there's a belief that the United States has a very particular and exceptional role to play in global um, engagement, and that part of that includes promoting and advancing basic rights. How do you promote, I mean, you're a U.S. organization, even though you have this international presence. How do you promote this idea when your home country has a prison in Guantanamo Bay in which people are extrajudicially detained indefinitely with, in my view, no real due process, a country where drone strikes have become a a preferred uh, foreign policy instrument, and where uh, a very popular civil libertarian democratic president was applauded when he signed a, uh, an execution warrant against an American citizen and, and had him murdered by a drone overseas uh, rather than bringing him to the U.S. and putting him on trial for terrorism? I love these questions so um, because they're so spot on. Um, the first is that... And, and clearly uh, <laughs> coming from one side of the side of the debate. But that's fine because they're right, actually. Like, yes, you know, they're partisan, I guess, if you want to look at them that way. But the first is that we, we try to hold the U.S. to account in the same way that we hold any other government. And we make that very clear. I think that comes up very often. It also comes up now with the Trump administration and the absence of credibility on press freedom issues, right? So we are consistently as an organization both making the same case to the United States that we make to other governments. We have long been active on military commissions. We have been pushing for prosecutions on torture under the Bush administration. we have opposed in this particular case Gina Haspel to be the head of the CIA because of her role uh, in overseeing torture. So we have been very vocal and outspoken. We are not defenders of the United States government simply for the sake of defending the United States government. Um, at the same time, we take no U.S. government money. Actually, we take no government money at all. So that enables us in our minds, and we hope in the minds of others, to be more independent and go after the governments that we need to go after, regardless of who's funding us. So we're not hindered by that in any way. Um, and, you know, I think the the final thing to say is that there is a credibility issue for the United States, and we are very well aware of that um, on our work overseas. And yet we're also aware that many uh, defenders, civil society activists, and foreign governments turn to the United States for guidance and leadership on human rights issues. And that is, that's a consistent challenge. It's a gray and difficult area. We know that these things have been done. We know that the U.S. shirks its responsibility on accountability a lot. And you think about the Kunduz hospital bombing in Afghanistan, for instance, there was a process of uh, accountability there, but we believe that it should have gone farther and that there should have been individuals held to account for criminal liability. We made no bones about being very public and clear that we thought that was insufficient. The, the location of this hospital was well known, was well communicated to all parties, like we do in a conflict. The opposition forces, including in the coalition forces and the Afghan forces, we've given the coordinates. This hospital exists for four years. It's a relatively big hospital that is clearly visible and known to everybody. So a a precise attack uh, on this big hospital, uh, if not proven differently, leads us to a war crime. Well, so, I mean, this comes up on uh, on some some of the issues that are current right now uh, while we're having this conversation. So we are... Critics of the Saudi campaign in Yemen are asking uh, for Yemen, uh, for, for Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates to exercise a level of uh, sensitivity to civilian casualties that the U.S. doesn't ask its own uh, military to have in 
uh, its ongoing military campaigns in Afghanistan and uh, against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, uh, which is not to say... Uh, so it's correct to ask the Saudis and the Emiratis to be more more respectful of human life, but it but then also the U.S. should be as and well. And we, we've been asking them and too. I know you have, yeah. right? That, but 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 so, so I'm not I'm not pointing yeah. this out as an inconsistency on your part. I'm saying how how on earth do do for example people in Congress when you're lobbying them to yeah. to to put this kind of standard on the on the 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 Gulf uh, uh, coalition. Uh, doesn't it make them uncomfortable when they are also complicit in, in you know, in their own government? So there are our some, own government. There are some uh, members of Congress who pick up on both issues and have been pushing the Pentagon for a lot more transparency and engagement on the question of civilian casualties, particularly in Iraq and Syria, including. Um, remediation and some kind of compensation for, for victims and those who are lost. It actually goes back, it starts, um, <coughs> excuse me, they start sort of asking for a, an investigation. And the thing that's sort of ironic is that there was a real push during the early years of the Afghanistan war where the U legislation was passed that actually mandated that this become a part of the policy. And it was helpful for the United States and Iraq to have a policy on civilian casualties. Commanders had money to provide compensation to families that they had lost. There was a process and authorities to do this. And why it wasn't adequately replicated in Iraq and Syria. I mean, the U.S. wasn't on the ground in Syria in the same way, so that's a little bit of a different context. But the fact that it wasn't clearly replicated in Iraq is a real loss and I think undermines any potential goal of engaging the local community in a smarter way. It was a boon for the U.S. military to, 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 to have this way to engage the community and to talk about making mistakes and accept and admit. And now we've stopped counting. We've they've they've stopped counting, they've uh, they've stopped counting. They've stopped. There's never been any remediation provided in Syria or Iraq, as far as we can tell. I may know of one case in Syria, but it's 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 a bit of a mess, and there's really very little transparency. There was a tiny unit at CENTCOM that was looking into civilian casualties, and that, for the best of my knowledge, has um, been disbanded. The defense authorization bill, which is an annual bill that passes through Congress, last year had a, a small provision that required one individual at the Pentagon to have the civilian casualty portfolio. And um, that passed. It became law. And just last week, the Pentagon uh, appointed a senior official to have that portfolio and to own it. Now, what that mandate looks like was mapped out a little bit in the law, but how they actually implement that is, of course, a question, and Congress is going to need to ride them hard to make sure they actually do it. We have not had anything that would lead us to believe that uh, there has been any civilian casualties, but we do have a very robust process that, that CENTCOM will undertake uh, um, in coordination with the, uh, the joint staff to work through that should, be there, should there be a, uh, um, a valid allegation of uh, civilian casualties out there. When you look at the arc of, of the Pentagon's conduct from 9-11 till now, would you say it's, it's, it's gotten worse, gotten better, been consistent in its minimalist commitment to these kinds of concerns? Up and down. I think there was a turning, and it differs from country to country, and I think it differs whether you're talking about boots on the ground or the use of drones. Um, I think there was a turning moment in Afghan. Uh, uh, there was a turning moment in Afghanistan where the U.S. military realized it needed to change its engagement. Um, I think Iraq has been an unmitigated disaster, and 
I would also say um, that beyond, and Syria has also been very problematic, not just about abuse or civilian casualties, but also about detention policies. And I would say that this goes to these countries in particular, but also globally, is the support of partner forces. And this has become a very significant and heavily funded part of how the U.S. engages militarily. It started under the last administration, under Obama. It hasn't seemed to stop under this one in any way, but in fact continued and been strengthened. The U.S. provides what seems like in some cases endless amounts of money to partner security forces under the guise of CT, counterterrorism. But that could be anything. And then we're, the U.S. is at arm's length and is not responsible for abuses committed by these partner forces. Exactly. And the vetting that goes into how these partner security forces function is minimal. Uh, sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they provide the funding. Sometimes the unit that's being funded, per se, is okay and clean, but the higher-ups are not. And this is a very old historical approach, right? This is how things took place during proxy wars in the Cold War. This is something that happened in the 19th century in conflicts, and it's uh, it, it seems to be a universal way of escaping political responsibility for acts that would be considered atrocities if con conducted by uh, a country's own soldiers, but somehow are someone else's someone else's crime and someone else's sin if it's yeah and i mean this was what we saw in the 1980s in latin america as well and there have been laws one is commonly known as the Leahy law which requires us to do adequate vetting of the units it's going to fund so there are provisions that have been enacted by congress again leading on the human rights concerns uh, and pushing the administration to do better which is part of its oversight job there have been laws enacted to sort of address this i think the concern now with this administration in particular, but it did start, it's important to say, under the last administration, is that we are looking at such a hyper-militarized foreign policy where the Pentagon is so dominant, security slash counterterrorism dominates so much of policy, and there are so many different accounts, so many different authorities, and so much money going to this type of U.S. engagement that it's hard to keep track there's poor transparency, and it's hard to really pay attention to all of the money and all of the forces that are taking it. We're doing our best, but you know we, we're looking at the security forces in Mali and Nigeria and Kenya, and and and, and you know I could go and in Afghanistan where there are horrific problems, and Iraq where the U.S. has in many cases enabled the Shia militia despite having you know been killed by them during the early years of the Iraq War. There are so many countries, if you go throughout Asia and sort of look at what this looks like, the picture is really, really tough. Isolating Iran continues to be an American foreign policy priority, but Iran is taking its own countermeasures. One is its long-term alliance with China and Russia. Together, these three nations are building alternatives to the American-dominated international system. The Century Foundation's Dina Sfandiari, along with her research partner Ariane Tabatabai, have studied this emerging new alliance and its implications for the international system. You can read about their findings in their new book, Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China. You can also read more on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. I'm talking with Sarah Margon in Washington, D.C. Sarah is the Washington Director of Human Rights Watch. Hi again, Sarah. Hi. Nice to be here. I wonder if there's been a shift as well in what society considers acceptable behavior. 
you you were just talking about the the, the counterterrorism uh, side of this issue, but I, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, Duterte's drug war mm-hmm. in the Philippines, yeah. which I, there, I know there is a little bit of a dimension of counterterrorism invoked by him as well, but it's basically, it's a war on drugs and it's being prosecuted in a brutally murderous way. I, the last time I was pay, paying attention, more than 3,000 people had been... 12,000. 12,000. 12,000 people have been killed in this in this campaign against yeah. civilian drug users. Yeah. Uh, and not only do many people applaud that, but, uh, but I think there... Trump, uh, Trump was a big admirer of Duterte's, uh, you know, getting things done approach, yeah. and it just seems like even even among people who aren't sympathetic to this kind of behavior, there seems to be a kind because because I I think back to thirty years ago, that would have that behavior would have been considered outrageous. That might not have made a difference. It might not have affected state policy. It would have been considered, however, beyond the pale. Uh, uh, in in sort of civilized modern there's world. there's there's definitely a hard line pivot that we've seen from this administration and you know for all, whether you agreed with the outcome or not the Obama administration did try to draft a legal framework and sort of make clear in as much transparency as we we'd ever seen on these issues how they engage how they use force it was lacking I think we you know as an organization we would have liked to see something even more. Um, progressive and clear. We didn't agree with all the definitions of that document, but that's basically been discarded by these guys. And more to the point is that because things have become so militarized, there's a fatigue of conflict. There's a fatigue of violence. I mean, you were just talking about sort of this, you know, in the Philippines, it's the police that are committing these atrocities uh, against uh, ostensible drug users, many of whom are, of course, not. It's not the mil- the Philippines military that's doing it. But there is, there is a fatigue uh, on this conversation that ties to how people accept or, or, or permit um, violations of the laws of armed conflict or the laws of war. Like, you're not supposed to go after a hospital. That's sort of a sacred space if two parties are fighting, right? Like, that's it. But what have we seen for years in Syria and in Yemen? Hospitals are constantly being bombarded by one party or another. And the UN is engaged on this a little bit. There's clearly a shift in what's toler- tolerated and what's not. And that, part of my job here in Washington and lots of my colleagues elsewhere in the world is to is to sort of reverse the narrative again and make the case not only why it's bad to to violate these important laws but also why it's not good for the US or if you were in France why it's bad for the France for France or the US or any other country to be either complicit or to support this um, and that's that's tough when it's consistently happening in a number of different countries but part of my job includes telling that not only telling why it's legally bad, but why it's bad for policy, why it's bad for Americans. It took a good 80 years from the Geneva, the first Geneva Convention to World War II when I guess at, that was the point where you yeah. had the maximal acceptance of yes. treating POWs with, right. with uh, you know, under, under the Geneva Conventions was, was a norm, not universally right. observed, of course. And since then, there's been, a, I, I would say, a steady flow in the other direction. Uh, and uh, I mean, today, is the U.S. military, is, is the Pentagon still the reservoir it once was of a, at least a legalistic commitment to the idea of uh, humane treatment of prisoners of war and, and the laws of war? They certainly believe that they are. They believe that they part of their job is to 
to uphold the law of armed conflict or LOAC as they call it. They believe they believe that the standard is high and part of their job is to defend it. Um, I think what we know is that there are there's departures from that all the time at the individual level, at potentially higher levels. And for me, the question is, how does the U.S. and the Pentagon in particular respond to those violations? It's hard to ask an entity that may have committed a violation to investigate itself, right? Like this sort of, we're seeing this now, the fact that the Saudis were tasked with investigating their behavior in Yemen uh, and someone somewhere thought that they would actually produce a viable report that would show they were accountable for something bad is a joke. The fact that they are again allowed to investigate themselves for the murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi is a joke. We know it's going to be a whitewash. The U.S. has more credibility, of course, than that. But still, I mean, the military justice system as a whole could stand for some serious reform. Hasn't there been a sea change uh, in attitudes that that was evidenced in, in the widespread acceptance of torture and the fact that a position that 20 years ago was unremarkable yeah. to be anti-torture had McCain in the last years of his life looking like a like an outlier when he would say, well, at least we can all agree that torture is wrong. And it turned out... They many- couldn't all agree on it, right? <laughs> like We should. In fact, he had to sort of tighten up the loopholes in the law, which, you know, we were already... We were already not allowed to 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 commit torture under any number of domestic laws and and our support for the Convention Against Torture, which uh, you know ha- have corresponding implementing legislation. So yes, in theory, um, the fact that the Bush administration and many senior officials there were able to manipulate the law and justify what with, happened with support from public opinion, yeah. which is a, which is like a yeah. crucial, yeah. awful part of the story yes. that 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 I hate I hate to take into account, but we can't overlook. No, we shouldn't, and I think. You know, in some sense, you can start to think of that as the fractures in in American society that we're seeing now in a very hyperpolarized way. It's reflected in other, it's reflected in other issues. Um, you know, what you believe America has the right to do, and the sovereign, the question of American sovereignty, and would you do all of this to defend uh, America? And 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 these questions are coming out now with the current administration in different ways, and watching sort of who supports. The, you know, a U.S. vision that is hyper-militaristic, hyper-jingoistic, and, you know, pro-sovereignty, as opposed to something in America that is part of a global community where we all uphold these laws to which we have committed. Um, there has been a sea... I mean, the pendulum swings, and I think that's important to remember, and I have to think about that a lot in my work, because you see things swing very far to the right, and then you see them swing back to the left. It is not entirely insane on some level that after President that after President Bush, we got President Obama, and that after President Obama, we got President Trump. This, to me, is the pendulum that swings. And I don't think, uh, you know, my hope is that it swings back. But in the meantime, how do we, as outside actors, do what we need to do to shore up and support the the American institutions uh, that believe in some of these basic fundamentals and the American people? And this is an interesting challenge that I've been thinking about a lot. Foreign policy has basically been a non-entity in most American elections at the, you know, at the midterm election or in the um, the larger presidential. And I think that's changing. I think uh, there's an opportunity to help change that and and to engage with Americans 
around the country who are interested and believe that the United States stands for something. And if we stand for something, then it should play not just a role domestically, but that we stand for it overseas as well. And I think there's a lot to tap into there and to build on. I mean, if you're going to run an anti, anti-torture or anti-killing children campaign, I think there's a real core part of that effort that has to do with public outreach inside the United States, right? You know, anti-torture education, anti-torture campaigning. And the other connection that to me is explicit, but I, I think can, you know, you can work to make people make it is that what we do abroad feeds what we do at home and vice versa. These, they're not, you know, it's not like the guy who beats his kids at home and then goes outside and is a, you know, noble citizen. We're the same entity out there in the world. And when we do what we do in Iraq, it comes home to haunt us in the way we police our communities and whether it's, uh, uh, unaccountable police officers who've been given huge amounts of military equipment going around and and killing American civilians or any number of other ways in which traducing the rule of law becomes a, a bad habit that we then inflict on ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a really good example. I've been doing a lot of work on Burma for many years. The last year has really been focused on the Rohingya crisis. But, you know, Burma is sort of moving in the wrong direction more generally. There's been a lot of concerns about free press, the jailing of two Reuters journalists. And at a recent meeting in South Asia, Vice President Pence, this was a couple of days ago, Vice President Pence was talking to Aung San Suu Kyi and he made the pitch for the release of the two Reuters journalists, which... Actually, I was sort of surprised to know he did and was pleased. At the same time, this was this pitch that he made to her about releasing the journalist was two or three days after the White House had revoked Jim Acosta's press credentials for asking persistent questions. So if I were Aung San Suu Kyi, I would have been like, uh, yeah, right, whatever. Um, why are you asking me this? You're doing the same thing at home to some degree. And so the credibility of the United States now to engage on these important issues overseas is seriously tarnished because of what's happening in the United States. And it's it's very difficult because we have to look to other actors to step into the fold and other actors, meaning other governments, still are looking to the United States in many ways, even though the rhetoric would make you think they're not. Um, they still, we know they are. How do you make the argument that um, if you're interested in stability and security, you need to have rule of law and humane treatment of civilians because otherwise you get allies that are only stable in the short term and in the long term are going to blow up in other ways? I mean, you know, when you look at the Arab Spring or the uprisings across the Middle East, most people say it's a failure, right? It was a total failure except for Tunisia, and even there it's sort of rocky in some ways. But there's another perspective or another view that you can look at, which is that in Egypt, in Syria, in Tunisia, in Libya, people this people all want basic rights. They all want the fundamental values that many of us in the United States are lucky to have. I would say not all of us because we have to be cognizant of sort of some of the internal discrimination here in the United States too. But I, this is something that everybody wants. And opening up and creating a government that is legitimately accountable to its people and creating some breathing room and some space and giving them a chance to play a role could have changed the outcome of many of the conflicts that we now see. You know, it, it was clear that Gaddafi was never going to do that. It's clear 
that Assad in Syria was never going to do that. Egypt suffered a lot and is suffering now, for sure. Um, but I think the argument for the United States is that even in the most difficult circumstances, when you don't think people are going to try to come, <clears throat> excuse me, and push forward for these basic rights, you find that it is something you do want. And the U.S. needs to be on the right side of that. It took the U.S. Um, and Secretary Clinton a long time to let go of Mubarak. They should have let go earlier. And that, you know, that that's a question. I think that's a learning moment for me. The U.S. could have been on the right side earlier, and that could have helped to influence things. And there's lots of learning still to do. Uh, Sarah Margon, uh, Washington Director of Human Rights Watch, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great. Thanks so much. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.